We're in Luke 18, and a couple of parables on prayer. We looked last week at the persistent widow, or the importunate widow. And we don't know if these two parables were taught back-to-back, or even on the same occasion, but they do belong together thematically. I mentioned last week that Luke has three parables from Jesus on prayer that aren't recorded in the other Gospels. In fact, the only parables Jesus gave on prayer are recorded in Luke. And so, again, we talked last time to some length about Luke's interest in prayer, especially in the life, the prayer life of Jesus Christ. But let's move on to the second parable on prayer, verse 9, down to verse 14. In both parables here, the parable of the importunate widow and this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector teach us how to pray. The first is that we are to pray persistently. The second one that we are to pray humbly. Luke 18.9 says this, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, back to verse 9. Just as in the previous parable, Jesus, or Luke rather, gives us a reason for this parable up front. The explanation is there. He says, Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And we don't know who these some people are. Uh, they could be Pharisees, but... I think if Jesus were to tell a, a parable about a Pharisee, it might be a little too on the nose if the Pharisees are in his presence right now. But these could be perhaps aspiring Pharisees. In any case, they were like Pharisees in the way that they saw themselves as righteous and viewed others with contempt. And there are the two problems with these folks. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And this is the very definition of self-righteousness. They trust themselves. Instead of the righteousness being accounted to them from the outside, from God, their so-called righteousness came from inside themselves. Now, this term righteous here comes from the same root as the word justified in verse 14. We'll look at a bit later. But you can sort of see this connection. Trusted in themselves that they were justified, almost in a sense, but self-justified. Not only did they trust themselves that they were righteous, but they also viewed others with contempt. They looked down on others. They thought of them as nothing, as worthless, as despicable. This is used later in Luke, this term, Luke 23.11. Herod and his soldiers, after treating Jesus with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. To Herod and the soldiers, Jesus was not the son of God. He was not anybody important. He was someone to be, somebody to be treated scornfully as nothing, as some, someone to be mocked. And later in Romans 14, Paul says this, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. So contempt can come into the church as well, this looking down on people as worthless. So these people 
trust themselves, they trust their righteousness, and they view others with contempt. Now, we get to the setting of the parable, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And it was common to go to the temple to pray. There were a couple hours of prayer, times of prayer in Jewish life. If you were close by, you might uh, walk over to the temple at that hour, or you could pray privately other times of the day. Uh, Acts 3.1 says that Peter and John went up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And Jesus establishes his two characters in this parable. First, the Pharisee. This man would be the most outwardly pious. The one, if you were to guess who God is most pleased with, you see the Pharisee, the tax collector, who are you going to pick as a, as a faithful Jew to be the one that you would expect to be the, the, the good guy? You'd pick the Pharisee, wouldn't you? And then you have the tax collectors. And these, these men were collaborators with Rome. They would have lots of contact with Gentiles. We're going to, besides being sort of dirty from that, uh, that contact with the Gentiles all the time, they were, um, they were often uh, cheaters. Uh, Matthew 9, verses 10 and 11, after Jesus calls Matthew as a disciple, it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, that is Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. The Pharisees saw this. They said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? It's almost like you have the sinners and you have the tax collectors in addition to them. They're, they're so sinful. They, they're kind of outside the, the normal sinners. They have a special category of sinners just for tax collectors. Uh, chapter 19 of Luke. We'll see Zacchaeus in a little while. But it says, verse 7, they saw it. That is, they saw Jesus receive Zacchaeus. They began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give him back four times as much. And so Zacchaeus, as this this chief tax collector, says, verse 2, he was rich, and he was rich off the backs of his fellow Jews through fraud and through lack of care for the poor. So, again, if you were one of Jesus' listeners to this parable, you might expect right away the Pharisee wore the white hat and the tax collector wore the black hat. You have the good guy and the bad guy. Now, these men are in one place for the same purpose here in the temple. And we see a Pharisee here in verse 11 praying. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. It says here the Pharisee stood, standing with his arms outstretched, with his eyes to heaven. And that was a common position of prayer. They didn't fold their hands and, and bow their heads like we do nowadays. They could stand and look into heaven like they're, they're looking at God. There's nothing wrong with his posture here, at least his physical posture, his spiritual posture, something else. It says he stood and was praying this to himself. And some translations might say something like standing by himself, praying thus, others about himself. This preposition, whether it's to himself or by himself or about himself, the prayer is all for himself and never really leaves himself. This prayer is all centered around this Pharisee himself. And what a prayer this is. It starts out well, doesn't it? God, I thank you. And maybe he could have stopped there. It would have been okay. And that parable would be over, but he goes on. And even the rest of verse 11 might be acceptable if he had the right attitude. 
God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. If he had the attitude of there, but for the grace of God, go I, that might be fine. We all see people who are uh, caught in sin, maybe somebody on the side of a road, or some, somebody on a on a, a billboard or on a, a commercial for a crazy reality TV show. You think there, there's a person who the world might envy, but I just have pity for them, and I thank God I'm not like that person. Uh, not you're looking down on them necessarily, but that you thank God that he's protected you from that kind of lifestyle. But we know that this Pharisee is not praying in that way. He's not really thanking God for blessing him above other people. He's comparing himself to these sinners, and he likes what he sees in comparison. But in verse 12, he really pats himself on the back. He gives God a list of his good deeds. He was very pious. He fasted twice a week, probably on a Monday and a Thursday. He's scrupulous in his giving according to the law. Now, for the Jews, the only required fast in the law was on the Day of Atonement, incidentally coming up just a few days, October 5th this year. And the nation might fast at other times or at a time of grief or extended prayer. You might remember Daniel says he gave his attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So there, there could be times you might fast yourself for a particular reason, but certainly twice a week was well above and beyond what the law required. Also, there was no requirement in the law to tithe absolutely everything. He says, I pay tithes of all that I get. But the law says this, Deuteronomy fourteen twenty two, You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So they were to tithe things, sort of the, the crops, you might say. But as Jesus mentions earlier in Luke, the Pharisees went above and beyond this tithing requirement. Jesus says you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. So they not only tithe the, the big stuff, the, the crops, they also tithe the little things, these little herbs. And yet they disregarded justice and the love of God. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So it's fine to over-tithe, perhaps, but not with the attitude of injustice and disregarding the love of God. And we also saw back in Luke sixteen fourteen the Pharisees were lovers of money. So while they tithe scrupulously, I expect 10% was exactly what they, they got. You guys ever have somebody like, maybe you're like this yourself, hopefully not at a restaurant, a tithe, or your, your tip is 20%, no more, no less, and you're getting your calculator down to the penny. Uh, that's how the Pharisees would be in regards to tithing, I'm sure. 10%, sorry, I've, I've already given my 10%, I can't give any more because they loved money. It also it doesn't say so in this passage, but I expect this Pharisee, compared to the tax collector, would be more scrupulous in the schedule of his prayers and had a longer history in prayer than the tax collector. But his attitude was entirely wrong. In fact, while he mentions God, as I said before, he was really praying to, by, about, and for himself. There's no humility. There's no forgiving my transgressions, as we see in the Lord's Prayer. He had no understanding that, as even as he talks about those who are swindlers, unjust, and adulterers, that covetousness is robbery in your heart, and lust is committing adultery in your heart. And while some of us may never have actually cheated somebody financially or committed adultery uh, literally, there are times when all of us have, have desired somebody else's uh, 
stuff. And so we're stealing in our hearts or who we have lusted in our hearts. So we have committed adultery in our hearts and we have all been unjust from time to time. And this tax collector should have realized that and should have been repenting of those sins. But instead he looks around himself. He sees people who might be obviously uh, swindlers. He might see other people who he knows committed adultery. And he sees this tax collector and says, boy, I'm not even like him either. And he despises what he sees as he looks around him. But he looks at himself, and he loves what he sees. So that's the Pharisee's prayer. His prayer, too, by, about, for himself. Well, we come next to the publican's prayer. The publican's prayer. Publican's an old term for tax collector. Verse 13. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This tax collector is also praying in the temple, but he's standing some distance away. He's he's humbled. He's brought low by his sin. He doesn't even want to get even close to God. It's interesting because we see here his whole body testified, testifies to his humility. We have his feet, his eyes, his hands, his mouth in this short verse. He's standing some distance away. He didn't want to be too close to the holy place where God dwelt. So his feet take him away from that holy place. He also, with his eyes, he feels unworthy. He's ashamed to lift his eyes to heaven. As we said, the normal way to to pray to God was to lift your eyes to heaven and and raise your arms. But he's like Ezra in Ezra 9.6. Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. And while the Pharisee patted himself on the back, the tax collector beats his breast. That's a sign of sorrow and contrition. So his his feet are away from the holy place. His his gaze is downward. His hands are, are pounding himself in the chest in sorrow. And then with his mouth, he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So his whole body is involved in this contrition. And he realizes he's a sinner. In fact, it says, the sinner. The Pharisee saw everyone else as the sinner. The tax collector sees himself as the sinner. And as a sinner, he has one need, and that need is mercy. God be merciful to me. He deserves God's righteous wrath, and he can't earn his own righteousness. Now, this term, be merciful to me, could also be translated as be propitious to me. We've talked about propitiation before, where God has just wrath towards somebody, but the sacrifice of Christ takes that wrath away and allows God to show favor upon somebody. So we earn God's righteous wrath, but the death of Christ makes it so that God can smile upon us. So this man is saying, in effect, I have sinned against you and earned your judgment, but turn your wrath away from me. Look with favor on me and please, God, smile upon me. And he knows that the one he's sinned against is the only one who can save him from the judgment for that sin. There's no place for a sinner to find mercy except from God. Couldn't help but think of Psalm 51 as I was thinking about this this tax collector. Psalm 51, verse 17, just at the end, near the end. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Interesting that word despise. The Pharisee despised the tax collector, didn't he? 
But did God despise the tax collector? Whose judgment is important? Man can despise us, but if God does not despise us, if God accepts our sacrifice, then we don't care what man might do to us. This tax collector had a sacrifice of a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, and God did not despise him. This prayer of this tax collector was really a distillation of Psalm 51, wasn't it? Just a few words. He takes what David has said in Psalm 51 after he's been confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. And let's just read a few verses and see what David has said here. Verse 1. And this sounds, again, much like what the tax collector has said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. David says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So again, this is what's in the heart, if not the exact words in the mouth of this tax collector as he comes before God in great sorrow over his sin. I'll keep your finger in Psalm 51 for a minute. As we go back to Luke 18, verse 14, we see answers to prayer. Answers to prayer, and that, that plural I think is important, the answers to prayer. Jesus says, I tell you, this man that is the tax collector went to his house justified rather than the other. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house. It's easy to skip over little phrases like that. But this means something important is coming. I tell you, and he says it earlier in verse 8 as well, I tell you, that means pay attention. He says it about 20 times in Luke. Remember how Jesus often in John says, truly, truly, I say to you. In Luke, he says, I tell you. Obviously, Jesus is telling them something, but he's saying, this is important. Pay attention. This is the what I want you to get out of all this. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. And Jesus' statement here shows that a single sentence, two-second prayer with a proper heart is more pleasing to God than a lifetime of prayer with a proud heart. And the Pharisee, in a sense, got an answer to his prayer to himself. He got what he wanted, I think. Jesus doesn't say it explicitly in this parable, but if we think about Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. I expect this Pharisee was praying in public ostentatiously, and people would come around and say, what a godly man this is. What a prayer warrior, they might say. He prays so often and so well. But what he wanted was to have men see him and approve him, and he had his reward in full. He had his answer to his prayer, what he wanted. He trusted in himself that he was already righteous, and he would have gotten the praise from men for his outward righteousness, but he didn't get the righteousness he needed the righteousness which was from God. And so Jesus even says here, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. That's emphasizing the fact that this Pharisee was not justified. He was not made righteous before God. But he got what he wanted. He wanted men's acclaim. He wanted his self-righteousness. Then the tax collector himself also got an answer to his prayer. He got what he wanted, and better than that, he got what he needed most. 
He begged for mercy and received it, and he went home justified. Now, what is justification? Well, to be justified is to be declared righteous by God, the holy judge. This tax collector sees himself before God's throne, before his, in his courtroom, and he knows he's guilty. All he can do is fall on his knees and beg for mercy. And it would be easy to jump first to discuss justification in the works of Paul, but just remind ourselves of what it says in Genesis 15, verse 6, when it says, Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That is, Abraham had faith in God's promise and God counted that faith towards him as righteousness. And at that point, Abraham was justified in God's sight. God gave him the gift of righteousness. We can stay in Psalm 51, if you're still there, and see the effects of justification or, or language that is, is related to justification. Verse 1, he says, According to your, the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Or as it says later in Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So when we are justified, our transgressions are blotted out according to God's compassion. Verse 2 says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Justification results in a cleansing from sin and being washed from iniquity. Similar thing in verse 7. Purify me with hyssop. I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This tax collector went away, washed, cleansed from his sins. Verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So when we are justified, God hides his face from our sins. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This sounds a lot like the new birth, doesn't it? That is, God gives us a new heart to follow him. And that's, again, wrapped up in this idea of justification as, as, he, as he changes us, that we can be forgiven from our sins. Verse 14 says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. So he's delivered from guilt. The guilt was upon him, but God, as he justifies this one who comes to him, says not guilty, because the blood guiltiness fell upon his son, Jesus Christ. We also see in Psalm 51 effects of justification. What comes out as you are justified. Well, verse 8 says, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. So, as we are justified, we have joy. Verse 10 says that we have a clean heart and a steadfast spirit within us. Verse 12 says that we have the joy of God's salvation, and He we ask that he will sustain us with a willing spirit. So we have this, this joy, this willing spirit. Verse 24, or 14 rather, at the end, my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. So this justification comes to to a sinner, and they are washed of their sins by God's grace, and they are brought forth in joy with, with a new heart to follow God. Now, justification in the context of Luke, let's look Back in Luke, verse 17 of Luke 18, and we see related terms to justification, things like entering the kingdom of God, 
Verse 17 says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Verse 24, and Jesus says, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. So when you are justified, you enter the kingdom of God, and that's the, that's the language that's often used in the Gospel of Luke. Look at verse 18 of chapter 18. The rich young ruler says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's another consequence or a gift, part of justification, is that we are given eternal life from God. Or also, chapter 19, verse 9, it says, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. So if you're talking about justification, you can also talk about entering God's kingdom. You can talk about getting eternal life. You can talk about receiving salvation in the, in the language of Luke. All these things are connected. Now, in our verse uh, 14 here, it says this man went to his house justified. It's the only time that Luke uses this term in this way. But we know that Luke knew Paul well. He traveled with him extensively. And remember, Luke was called the beloved physician by Paul. So Paul and Luke were very close friends. And so when Paul uses, or Luke uses the term justification, he knows what it means, even if he doesn't explain it very much in his gospel. And Paul is, of course, the great teacher of justification. And we can look at several passages, but let's just look at Romans chapter 3 fairly briefly. We don't have time to make a whole study of justification right now. But Romans 3, Paul has some really focused discussion here on what justification is. Verse 21, Romans three twenty-one down to verse 28. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So we are justified by grace. It's a gift. It's not something we earn. This justification means, again, to be declared righteous before God's God's holy court. And that comes... Uh, as a result of Jesus Christ's death for us. Verse 25, whom God, that is Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as propitiation, there's that word again, propitiation, in his blood through faith. That is, God was uh, wrathful towards us, justly wrathful towards us, but because Christ died on our behalf, he can now look with favor upon us. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance, the the patience of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this is an important uh, verse here because we might say, well, God has to be just. And for God to be just, he's holy. To be just, he has to do what to sinners? He has to punish sin. The wages of sin is death, they'll say later. So if God were totally just and only just, we would be without hope. And yet if God just forgave sins because he's a nice guy, he would no longer be just. So if God justified without a righteous penalty being paid, that would be unjust. But God can be just 
and the justifier because of Christ Jesus. So God can maintain his holiness because he's poured out his wrath for sin upon Christ himself for his people. He can justify us. He can declare us righteous because Christ was declared unrighteous on our behalf. So again, God can be just. He can be holy and righteous as well as justifying or declaring righteous those who by nature deserve death. Verse 27 continues, Where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This justification does not come through our efforts, through our good intentions, our our prayers, our hard work for God, but by faith. We believe in Christ and we receive that justification from him. They can only come through faith. We don't earn it in any way at all. We cannot please God enough to earn that salvation. Uh, It'd be like getting a, a... a, a rich gift that you cannot possibly afford and then try to pay for it with your meager resources. It can't be done. It can only be received as a gift. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So this justification comes from the tax collector. He doesn't pay to get the justification. He doesn't do any works of uh, great contrition, uh, climbing up stairs on his knees or going on a great journey. All he does is he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and he goes away to his house justified. We go back to Luke 18. And Jesus, as he often does with his parables, he surprises us with this lesson. He turns expectations around. Like, remember the rich man and Lazarus? You think the rich man would go to heaven, the Lazarus, the, the, the one who had these sores that we're being licked by the dogs. That man is destined for hell for sure. Jesus' lesson here in Luke 18 is, don't be like the Pharisee, be like the tax collector. Now, that kind of blow your mind if you were a first century Jew, to be like a tax collector and not like a, a Pharisee. This despised tax collector is the one who got into the kingdom of God. He's the one who received salvation. He's the one who got eternal life. He's the one who was justified. And the Pharisee came with his self-righteousness and he left in his sins. The tax collector came in with his sins and left with the righteousness that comes from God. Well, Jesus here gives the lesson at the end of verse 14. He who, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this connects back with verse 9 where it says that there are these people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. They exalted themselves and they humbled others in their mind. And God, Jesus says God flips that around. There's a reward for pride and there's a reward for humility. And Jesus gives this lesson a couple of times, also, incidentally, in the context of the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, when he's condemning the Pharisees, listen to what Jesus says here, verse 5. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. So they exalt themselves. Verse 11, But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Earlier in Luke, verse 14, 
or sorry, chapter 14, verse 8. Jesus says, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will all have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The same, same lesson as Luke chapter 18. If you humble yourself, you'll be humbled. If, or exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. If you humble, humble yourself, you'll be exalted. And Jesus here doesn't say who's doing the humbling and who's doing the exalting, but it's obvious from other places in Scripture, it's not some sort of impersonal karma doing this to you, but it's God himself. Uh, Jesus' mother Mary even knew this back in Luke 1. She says that God has done mighty things with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. And James, the brother of Jesus, said this in James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. But then a few verses earlier, he says in James 4.6, quoting Proverbs 3, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So you humble yourselves, God lifts you up. You exalt yourself, God will bring you down. God will be opposed to you. And now while you might look humble on the outside, the Pharisees may have looked humble on the outside, but the Lord sees the heart. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. So as we look at humbling and exalting, who do you want to exalt you? I think we all kind of like to be exalted in our heart of hearts. We love to have praise, we love to have honor and glory. Do you want yourself to do that, if you exalt yourself? Or would you rather have God exalt you at the proper time? may not ever be exalted in men's eyes, but at the end, if you are faithful to Christ, what does he say? Well done, good and faithful servant. And how many accolades from men do you need to get to balance out that one accolade from Jesus Christ? Well, let's end with a a few thoughts here for the application. When we... At least, I'll speak for myself. When I look at this parable at first, it's easy to see myself on team tax collector and say, yes, that, that's the guy, that's that's me, that, I'm the humble one. But on further reflection, I have more in common with the Pharisee than I'd like to admit. Remember, this, this Pharisee was like those who trusted in themselves that they are righteous and viewed others with contempt. These Pharisees may have started seeing a separated life, a holy life, as, with good motivations at first. They wanted to serve God, but... The quest for personal holiness can often end up on a high mountain looking down on everybody else. This idea of treating others with contempt seems to have become more of a problem in our society, even in the church, the last few years. In so many places, contempt is shown, whether it be politics, whether it be uh, vaccination status, whether you're pro-vax, vax, anti-vax, various views on how quickly to open up after covid there's so many things where you just see contempt being thrown around everywhere. And it's not enough for some people just to disagree and even argue, but you have to despise those who disagree with you. That's the way the world works nowadays. And we might see these attitudes in the world, but it's sadly common among Christians as well. 
Uh, many times I've seen Christians willing to abandon the fruit of the Spirit to win an argument, and I've done it myself. It's kind of easy to see it coming, I think, if when you, let's say, see your least favorite president or a governor or a public health official you don't like very much, or maybe closer to home, a co-worker or a neighbor or a family member, and you see that person, you think about that person, it's like a, a contempt switch flips inside you. Nobody, nobody here, of course, I'm sure. But people will just push your buttons in a way, or you let yourself have your buttons pushed, and, and your default for them, that person is contempt, disdain, despising them, thinking that they're nothing or less than nothing. And all the, the good feelings you might have after a good time of prayer or devotion or a good sermon can just get knocked down in a moment. Let's look at Galatians 5, this, the fruit of the Spirit. I was just meditating on this as I think about viewing others with contempt. In Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, is this famous passage on the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul here says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And what does the world want us to do? What does our heart want to do too often? We want to have these sort of fruit. Hate, anger, bitterness, acrimony, intolerance, cruelty, mercilessness, dishonesty, harshness or rudeness, lashing out and not controlling one's tongue or maybe one's fingers on your phone or on your computer. That's what the world does and that's what too often we will do when we see people that we we despise, we have contempt for. All these sort of anti-fruit of the Spirit come out. In the last few weeks, Tom's been giving us good reminders about spiritual warfare from Ephesians 6, but we can't expect success wielding the sword of the Spirit if we are not producing the fruit of the Spirit. You imagine somebody with a sword who's untrained to use it. It's a danger to himself and others. So if we're trying to use God's Word to confront the world or to speak to a, a brother or sister in Christ, but we lack the fruit of the Spirit, we're wasting our time. We need to repent of that. doesn't mean you can't have strong opinions. doesn't mean you can't disagree. doesn't mean you have to compromise. But we must be very careful to guard against contempt. When we see somebody as less than human, less than someone in the image of God who deserves some measure of respect. So be aware of your, your heart. When you see somebody you're inclined to have contempt for them, uh, ask yourself, is, am I really responding in a way that would reflect what Christ says in Luke 18? Am I more interested in praying for this person, more interested in their soul than I am winning an argument or maybe making myself feel better by looking down on them from a great height, how righteous I am? Well, how do we combat this inclination to contempt? Well, first of all, we need humility. And we can look at those inside the church or outside the church and and our need for humility. Listen to Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is in the church context. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You can't view somebody from a, a great height 
down with contempt on the, if you're if you're considering them as more important than yourselves. That they're just that doesn't work that way. If you're so humble that you're focusing on other people's needs, what's best for them, what would show God's love to them, you will not have contempt for them. And even those outside the church, it can be easy sometimes when we see people given over to their sin to trust in ourselves that we're so righteous and we can view them with contempt. You, know, you might be watching TV and have some crazy commercial coming out. I mentioned this before, a reality TV show, and people just acting in ways that Sodom and Gomorrah would be ashamed of. And yet, what's your reaction to those people? Is it contempt? That, that's an easy reaction, isn't it? But is, is there some measure of pity in there for them, as we know people without Christ are given over to their sin? Do we really view them with contempt? This can be a, a test of our Calvinism, our views of the doctrines of grace, how we behave towards the unrighteous. That's a good test of whether we truly believe what we say about the doctrines of grace. Do you truly see yourself as saved only by the predetermined sovereign plan of God and that salvation was gained only by God's grace entirely through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you believe that, you know that we still need grace and mercy every day. We're still sinners saved by grace. And so we cannot view ourselves as better than anyone else. As you said before, there but for the grace of God go I. There's no sin that we could ever see done by somebody else that we cannot commit but for the grace of God. And as we see ourselves in that way, that humble way, we can be thankful to God that we are not like that person but not look down with them with contempt. And Paul said in Romans 12.3, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. The Pharisee in Luke 18 compared himself with others and thought he did pretty well by comparison. And we could do the same thing. Look around uh, in the church or in our neighborhood or the crazy people on TV and think, boy, I sure am a lot better than they are. I would never do that. But who are we to compare ourselves with? Who's our standard? Is it yeah? Is it reality TV? No. Is it the the laws of our nation or the the behavior of our public officials? No. Our comparison is to Christ, only to Christ. Paul says, Philippians two four to eight. Have this attitude, speaking of humility, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now it's easy to feel self-righteous when you compare yourself with, with others you might deem lower than yourself. But if you're struggling with pride, look at yourself through a biblical lens and keep looking at Christ. You may look better than somebody else in this world, but if you look at yourself and look at Christ, did you come from heaven to earth to die uh, a sinner's death? Did you give up for a time that this, this heavenly position to come on the earth and, and walk among uh, sinners and die for sinners? No, you haven't. None of us have. So, in those ways and many others, we fall far short of our standard who is Christ Jesus. And so, if we are tempted to be contemptuous of those around us, look to Christ and then show the contempt for yourself first. Another thing we need besides humility is love. 
Remember that those we might view as contemptible, and again, people act contemptibly, don't they? They do things that are against God's law, horrendous things. But these people we might view as contemptible need God's love, not our judgment. God is the judge. That we might say, this is what God's law says about your behavior, but I need to love them, speak the truth and love to them. They might come to know Christ. And we need to pray for ways to show the fruit of the Spirit in ourselves to them so that they can see that we have a real Savior. People aren't going to be one to Christ because we are yelling at them for their sin. They're going to come to Christ as they see our loving attitude toward them and show the fruit of the Spirit so that they know there's a real thing we have in our hearts. The Spirit of God is in us, making us more like Jesus Christ. And for those perhaps here today who are weighed down by your sin, like this tax collector in Luke 18. Maybe you feel the sin and you don't know how to be rid of that. You know you need mercy, but don't know how. You can find a great Savior in Jesus Christ. You come to him in humility, asking for mercy, and he will justify you. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. You may have heard people say this. Maybe yourself have said it. I'm such a great sinner, Christ could never forgive me. I've done too much wrong in my life. God could never forgive me for that. Is that true? No, it's not true. Paul here says, admittedly, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you're a sinner today, in a sense you're in a good spot because you have a good Savior who can come and save you from that sin. If you're like a Pharisee and think, I'm not a sinner, then... That's the most dangerous place for you to be. The Pharisee did not get justification from God, but this tax collector who knew he was a sinner, repented of his sin, uh, trusted in God for mercy, and he was saved. He was justified. And if God can save Paul, he can save any one of us because we have a great Savior in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this good parable from Jesus that teaches us so much. And I know for myself... It holds a mirror up to my soul, and I don't always like what I see there, as it's so easy to view others with contempt. We can take the the fruits of the Spirit in our hearts, the righteousness that He brings about in us, and let that be a source of pride. And how how horrific that is that we could take something that's a gift to us and then somehow boast that it was truly ours. We pray that you would help us who might be struggling with pride and contempt to repent of those things where we are showing contempt in our hearts or with our lips. May we, again, set that aside, repent of that sin, and use those temptations to contempt to be uh, ways to remind us to pray for these people who need Christ, who need uh, to see your love through us, that we might humbly serve them and point them to the Savior that we have. We have earned nothing. Help us to be consistent with what we say. If we don't earn grace, we can't look down on others for not having that grace. We do pray that you would use us as instruments of your grace to those who need to see the love of Christ. Help us to stand firm in the truth, but also to speak the truth in love. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.